the, the whole advertising industry is aimed at attracting consumers to something that's new. Unfortunately, for those who are involved in marketing and advertising, there's a world of people out there clamoring for something new. Something, just the next new thing. Think of your favorite toothpaste. I don't know what your brand is, Crest, Colgate, whatever it is. Uh, They're always coming out with new varieties. I mean, how how complicated can toothpaste be, right? But... uh, it's got to be something really special. So they come out with warp speed whitening Colgate. And then they'll probably put a little tag on there that says new, right? And then they kind of have to ramp it up for the plain old stuff too. So you don't just have the super duper Colgate and then regular. You know, it'll say great regular flavor. You know, they've even got to prop up the regular stuff. Everybody's looking for the next new thing because if it's new, it must be better, right? Well, that's what we think. But what this passage in particular shows us is that we may think things are new, but they're not really. The text tells us there's nothing new under the sun. Interesting phrase. Nothing new under the sun. Now, other than the ongoing references that we see throughout Ecclesiastes to vanity, these, there's nothing new under the sun, are some of the most familiar words from the book of Ecclesiastes, and yet they only occur here. And that notion that nothing new, there's nothing new under the sun. It relates to, and it springs from all the observations we saw in the previous passage, verses four through eight. This notion of repetition and this notion of sameness about everything around us, everything that's going on. Now, I don't know how many times you've read Ecclesiastes on your own. I don't know what kind of goes through your minds as we read passages from it together. Uh, during this series. But perhaps these verses that we've read tonight have a, a sort of a ring of, of despair or cynicism to them. And I think some people take that away from much of Ecclesiastes. It all comes across as sort of cynical, but let's not misinterpret. Solomon is writing as the wisest of the wise who, despite his wisdom, turned away from God for a time. And all his immense wisdom, nevertheless, he, he turned away from God. His heart was drawn away. And at the end of his life, he repented. I'm persuaded of that. And in his repentant state, at the end of life, at the last, in his last years, he wrote this book, giving you and me in all the ages uh, his epic treatise, on what the things that he learned from painful, bitter experience. And what I hope we can take away from this text tonight is wisdom enables Christians to perceive the limitations of what this present age offers. 
and to fix their hope on Christ and the age to come. That word vanity that keeps coming up throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, it embodies everything that this present age has to offer and wisdom enables us to see that and in a way even to embrace it and then turn our gaze away from what's under the sun and look to Jesus. So the three points, and I wasn't trying to be snarky or irreverent or, or, or silly or get a laugh from these points, but the first point has been there, done that, which we see in the beginning of verse 9. Secondly, nothing new. That's really sort of the emphasis of this passage. And then finally, I want to talk about something I'm going to call generational memory loss. So first of all, been there, done that. Look with me at verse 9. He says, what has been is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done. So when you pick up your newspaper or when you uh, go to your website where you get your news, the events that make the headlines, they're really just variations on a theme. They're not new. In the, in the real sense. You know, that's where the word, our English word news comes from. It's things that are new. These are the news. So whatever you read or whatever you hear from whatever your news source is, it may sound special. It may sound audacious. It may come across as new, but ultimately it's just more of the same. Different names different details, but in the end, it's the, the same song, just the next verse. Consider, for example, the struggle for land. And I was thinking of this example even before the, the terrible events of uh, these past two days in the Middle East. And we can think way, way back we can think to the days of the judges. You remember there was a judge by the name of Jephthah. And after Jephthah um, was appointed to be judge and to lead the armies of the people of Israel, the Ammonites came and they were attacking Israel and disputing this territory. It was territory that the Israelites had been given by God, territory that they took during the conquest of the promised land. Now, it wasn't in the actual land of Canaan. Some of that land that they were disputing was actually east of the Jordan. But you remember when Israel was trying to get to the land that the Lord was giving them, they had to pass through a couple of countries that said, no, you can't pass through here. And then they attacked Israel. God gave Israel victory over them and gave them their lands. And so in the days of Jephthah, 300 years after the people of Israel had taken over this land and dwelt in it, three centuries, some of the former inhabitants came back and said, hey, that land you're on, it's ours. Give it back. And so Jephthah kind of sets the record straight, explains what really happened, and he, it's, it's great what he says because he says, hey, how about, how about we dwell in the land that our God gives us and you dwell in the land that your God gives you? The enemies wanted it back, though. You fast forward to uh, present day, 
There's Russia saying, oh yeah, you know, Crimea, that actually is ours. So uh, hand it over. If not, we're going to take it. And now they're saying, well, you know, there's a little bit more of Ukraine that, that we want now too. And it's really ours originally. So, and then by that, they justify all the atrocities and all the war that's being waged there. And I don't want to dive into any of the p politics of any of that, but you know, you've got uh, China in a struggle or in a uh, conflict over Tibet and other places, other land. There's always some country trying to take land from another country. It's nothing new. And again, I think of yesterday's attacks on Israel. And if you read any of the stories, it's, it's horrible what's going on over there. And Israel's our ally. We should be concerned. But what's going on is brutal, terrible, but sadly, it's not new. In fact, the very news stories you read indicate that it's not new because everything that Hamas is doing right now in Israel is being compared to what ISIS has done in other places. Nothing new. And so, Solomon tells us, what has been is what will be. What has been done is what will be done. And so what he's doing here is he's taking a perspective, he's taking a view that spans the past, but also looks to the future, looks to the next generation and beyond, to the generation after that. Not just what has been is, but what has been is what will be. It's almost as if he's saying, don't expect anything much different. Certain basic phenomena are common to every age, every culture, and that's partly because, apart from God, man can't come up with anything new. Certainly, man can't come up with anything better. So the whole course of life under the sun now is been there, done that, seen it all before, which takes us into the last part of verse 9 and on into verse 10, which teach us that there's nothing new. We want new things, but in the ultimate sense, there isn't anything new really under the sun. Uh, on, the on a regular basis, every week, maybe couple of times a week, I get advertisements in my email from different Christian publishers. And the ads almost always say something like, every pastor must read this book. You know, every Christian has to read this book, as if this book that's just hit the shelves, just hit the press, is what everybody's been missing, and you've got to read this. The reviews that are published with uh, these advertisements on a regular basis speak of whatever this brand new book is in superlative terms, and they have to. An author writes a book and he tries to get some recognized people, recognized authorities, scholars, theologians to write a review for their book so people will be motivated to read it. So these reviews speak in superlative terms. And I've, 
you're welcome to go look at my bookshelves. I've probably got nearly a dozen different systematic theologies, and yet I'll get an email this week sometimes saying, you've got to have this systematic theology. It's new. Or think about the shelves in your grocery store. As you walk down the aisle, how many packages say new? Things may seem new, but they're really not. That's kind of what verse 10 is getting at. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It's already been in the ages before us. Variations on a theme, same song, 11th verse. Now, someone will object, and I understand. And you gotta, we, we have to understand um, the nuances of this statement. We have to understand that Solomon isn't saying there's no progress. He's not saying that there's never any change or development in things. That's not really what's at work here. So we might object. Oh, come on, don't tell me there's nothing new. What about medicine? What about the field of medicine? We've made, especially in the last century, even in the last couple of decades, amazing progress in the field of medicine. Again, I think of uh, dear ones that we know who are suffering from, from cancer. And we have made tremendous strides in areas like pain management, haven't we? Tremendous strides in heart surgery. Our dear brother Rob is here with us tonight. A couple of weeks ago, he was lying on a table with his whole chest ripped open. And there he is. He's up and about walking around feeling good. Praise God. Now that's progress. We've made tremendous progress in trauma care. And other things. A brother, John Gatch, went up to MUSC, got a heart valve replaced, now he's back home. It's amazing. And we might say, that's new. People are doing things in the operating room and in the emergency room and in clinics that, that weren't even possible 30 years ago. But all these things really are just mere advancements or improvements in a general effort that's as old as the human race. The effort to mitigate suffering and to prolong life, which we've been doing since the beginning. And yet, Despite the progress, despite the developments, despite any advances in medical care, the curse remains in every single one of us, no matter how good the medical care we receive might be, is subject to those words of God, you shall surely die. Medicine hasn't changed that, and it never will. Another objection. You say there's nothing new? Well, what about information technology? In 1995, Hillary and I were newly married. We had a computer. That had actually been hers before we got married, so it became our computer. That computer had a central processing unit that ran at 33 megahertz. If you're into computers, you might chuckle when you hear that. I think we upgraded later that year, and it kicked it up to 66 megahertz, then we were flying. But I remember having a conversation with some brothers at church, 
and someone mentioned that there was some uh, manufacturer who's getting ready to release a CPU, and that thing was going to run at 100 megahertz. And we were all like, whoa. Well, again, go to my office. You'll see a little laptop that first Scott's bought for me when I first got here. It's about four years old. That processor runs at 1.8 gigahertz. And it's only about a third as fast as the fastest processors that are available today. So that's new, right? Well, not really. New processors really do the same old thing that old processors do. They just do it a little faster. Here's the issue. We crave something new. We despise the same old, same old. But Solomon wants to help cure us of this craving. Solomon wants to help us see that there's nothing new under the sun. Nothing new, again, under the sun. So not only does Solomon want us to be cured of our craving for the new, he also wants to point us to the one true source of newness. And that's God himself. There's nothing new under the sun. But God is the God who does new things. God is the God who can make you new. God is the God who makes us a new creation in Christ. And he's the one who ultimately is going to usher in a new heavens and a new earth. That will be new. And only God can do that. You won't find new things, truly new things under the sun. A lot of times we perceive that things are new, and that's because we have, brings us to our third point, we have something that I'm calling generational memory loss. Look at verse 11 again. There's no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. So you see how he's leapfrogging from not from our generation to not just the next one, but a generation or two after that. And no, how many, no matter how many generations forward you go, whatever generation that is, they're not going to remember the generation before them. That's the sort of, not cynical, but sort of the sad picture he's painting for us. We, we have this generational memory loss, which is why George Santayana said, and I think others have said this, and this has been attributed to a number of different people, but he said, uh, those who do not remember the past are condemned to repeat it. You've heard that expression, right? And the problem is most of us don't remember the past. Winston Churchill had a, another statement along these lines. I think I like his better because he puts a little bit more of a positive spin on it. But Churchill said, the farther backward you can look, the farther forward you're likely to see. But we don't look backward all that much. And that's what Solomon's pointing out. Verse 11 of our text is just as much an indictment as it is an observation. See, we think things are new because we can't remember the old things. We think we're seeing something extraordinary, something different, but that's because we've forgotten what came in the past. Solomon says there's no remembrance of former things, present things, or later things. 
because those who are coming after us, brothers and sisters, aren't going to uh, remember, be remembered by those who follow them. And what Ecclesiastes is doing here is it's kind of zooming out. Not only is it trying to lift our perspective from what's under the sun, but it's also calling us to step back and see a bigger timeline. To zoom out and try to view time past, time present, and time future. Because people forget. And that's especially relevant because I think the focus here in verse 11 is as much on people as it is on things. Now your ESV Bible will say there is no, former, no remembrance of former things, but you probably even have a footnote in your Bible uh, on the word things. And that's because the Hebrew word for things doesn't occur in verse 11. There is a Hebrew word you can use to describe a thing, and uh, it's not there in the text. All that's there is this one word, it's an adjective, and it just means something that's former. It's, it's something previous, and it occurs in the plural, so, former things is the way it comes to us in the uh, ESV. But it refers both to former and latter things as well as former and latter people. And maybe the emphasis is on people. The emphasis, emphasis might be on generations. Because remember, that's what he said in verse 4 that we looked at last week. A generation goes and a generation comes. So he's got in mind and setting before our eyes this rising and falling of a generation after another. Or if you glance ahead to chapter 2, verse 16, Solomon laments the fact that for of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been forgotten. Again, not necessarily a very cheery thought, but how well do you remember? I'll ask a question here, and I think some of you young people who may have recently had to study this in school or memorize lists like this, um, you can probably do really well at this. But let me just ask everyone, uh, how well do you remember the, the U.S. presidents? If I said, okay, start with President Joe Biden and name the presidents going backward in order, how far could you get? Or if you were to start with George Washington and to name the presidents in order going forward, how far could you get? Now, if you ever were made to memorize all the presidents, you might be able to do that. But I confess, I couldn't do it. Most of us probably couldn't. And that's presidents, presidents of the United States. What about, what if we come down to a lower level like governors of South Carolina or mayors of Beaufort? How many can you remember? How many can you name? Or what about your own relatives and ancestors? I mentioned last week that I can name mine maybe back four generations and even that fourth generation ago, probably only because I have that document I was telling you about. Could I go five, six generations? I promise you, I can't. And I bet you can't either. 
the great generation, followed by the silent generation, followed by the baby boomers, followed by Generation X, followed by the millennials, followed by Gen Z, and now I think the newest is called Generation Alpha. See, we're having to go back to the start again. <laughs> Just use a different language. All suffer from generational memory loss. Now, memory loss from one generation to the next is regrettable, but we can take two important points of application from this frustrating reality. Here's how we can apply this text. Particularly the idea of not being remembered and not remembering. Let that reality persuade us and motivate us to remember. Let's be a people who remember. There are manifold benefits from remembering what many others have forgotten. Consider how many times God's own word calls us, commands us even, to remember things. Remember the word of God. In the Old Testament, God spoke to his people and said, remember the words of my servant Moses. Or the fourth commandment, remember the Sabbath day. Remember the things the Lord has done for you. Remembering is so important that God describes his own faithfulness in terms of remembering when he says, I will remember my covenant. And that's intended to comfort you. His faithfulness, that God in his faithfulness will remember his covenant with you. We are prone to forget. Let's strive to remember. Secondly, knowing that we're not going to be remembered by the generation to come. Let's all let go of that carnal and self-centered desire to develop a legacy. If there's anything that's obviously vain, and you know, that's the, that's the word that's going to continue to come up in Ecclesiastes. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Solomon's going to examine a certain aspect of life, a certain activity that that mankind does and he's going to sum it up and he's going to say this too is vanity. He says it over and over in this book and if there's anything that really epitomizes vanity it's the egocentric pursuit of some kind of lasting reputation and let, letting that be one's focus, let, letting that be one's ambition to be remembered, to have a legacy. Cast that off. I quote my Hebrew professor again, Dr. Ben Shaw. He said, the fact is, most people will make no apparent impact on the world. They will live, die, and immediately be forgotten by all but their closest friends and relatives. Really cheery thought, I know, but uh, that's the fact of the matter, isn't it? There's this slogan that was, uh, I think, coined by uh, Count Nicholas von Zinzendorf, a Moravian pastor and missionary. And in our day, a lot of pastors I know, especially some of the younger ones, are, are kind of quoting this slogan to each other by way of encouragement. It might sound a little weird uh, as encouragement, but it goes like this. Preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. 
Make that your goal. Preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. That might not sound very encouraging, but here's what it really means. Here's what it's getting at, okay? Proclaim Christ. Keep proclaiming Christ until the day you die, and then have no concern for achieving fame or being enshrined in history books. Be forgotten and be content to be forgotten. Hardly anybody reads history books anyway, right? The goal shouldn't be our own legacy or our own mark on history. History is his story, which is why Paul says, we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord. Nothing else matters. One application from this text that I want you not to make Do not make this application from this passage in Ecclesiastes. Do not reach the conclusion that somehow history is circular. You take verse 4 and on through our text for tonight, uh, you could reach that conclusion, but it's a pagan conclusion. It's a Christless opinion. History is not circular. We've seen, Solomon observed, that there are repetitive patterns in nature. For instance, the sun, the wind, the water cycle. There are repetitive patterns and certain uh, inevitable recurring patterns in societies. But but to conclude from these observations uh, that history is just a running loop is completely false. Simple observation from a carnal perspective may lead to the assumption that History is is running in a circle, but the light of God's word makes it undeniably clear that history is moving not in a circle, but in a steady line, an unalterable line that concludes with the great day of judgment. That's where history is going. It has an aim. It has an end. And history points to the judge, the one who will judge the living and the dead. So brothers and sisters, Let's not labor so that we'll be remembered. Let's labor so that he'll be known. See to it that Christ is proclaimed. Remember your creator. He'll take care of making sure you're remembered because your names are written on the palms of his hands, he says. You want to be remembered? He'll take care of that. All this is just one more reason to fix your eyes on Jesus. There is nothing new under the sun. Ultimately, there's nothing satisfying under the sun. And we were created not to find our fulfillment in things under the sun, but to fix our hope on Christ and on the age to come. Let's pray together. Lord, forgive us that we so continually look for satisfaction in things that can't satisfy. Help us to fix our eyes on Jesus. Help us, Lord to look to him, to fix our hope on him, and to uh, not be so attached to this age. You give us so many good things to enjoy in it, but let us not cling to them. Lord, let us look to the life to come. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.